From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. I want to tell you about a great new book. It's called Strictly Dynamite, The Sensational Life of Lupe Velez. Now, it's possible that you never heard of Lupe Velez, and it's possible that you don't like old movies or you don't care about the history of Hollywood's golden age. But even so, you will enjoy this book because it was written by Eve Golden. Eve Golden has such a great sense of humor, and she's such a marvelous storyteller that you'll enjoy this book as much as I did. Eve Golden has written several great biographies of entertainers from the past, including Platinum Girl, The Life and Legends of Jean Harlow, Vernon and Irene Castle, Castle's Ragtime Revolution, John Gilbert, The Last of the Silent Film Stars, and the brilliant 2021 book, Jane Mansfield, The Girl Couldn't Help It. And now, Eve Golden returns with Strictly Dynamite, The Sensational Life of Lupe Velez, and I get to say, Eve Golden, welcome back to From the Bookshelf. Hello, darling. It's always nice to talk to you. Well, it's great to have you back. And now, Eve Golden, you write such diverse books, and your and your subjects, you know, they're all major stars in their day, but largely forgotten today. And I wonder, how do you decide who you'll spend a, a year or two researching? That's the hardest part of any book, is choosing a subject, because you have to choose somebody who's hasn't had a really definitive book done on them before. And it has to be someone I like because who wants to spend two or three years with somebody you don't like. Uh, It has to be somebody whose work I respect. And uh, for me, they have to be kind of crazy in a good way because crazy is fun to write about and crazy is fun to read about. And uh, an early horrible death always helps. (laughs) <laughs> well, so uh, is that what led you specifically to Lupe Villas? Well, kind of. I mean, I mean, like Barbara Stanwyck and Claudette Colbert, I think were among the most brilliant actresses there ever were. I just adore them. But they were nice, normal, boring people who did their job and went home. Mm-hmm. And that's not that interesting to write about. Whereas Lupe, she was always dialed up to 10. She was not only a brilliant, versatile actress, but she was kind of hard to take in person sometimes. She was overly enthusiastic. And the embarrassing part is people say, oh, she was typecast as a Mexican spitfire. But in real life, she really was a Mexican spitfire. I mean, some people are just natural stereotypes, which is embarrassing, but true sometimes. (laughs) She had little chihuahua dogs and all that. Oh, my God. She would, she would, yell and scream at the top of her lungs and get overly enthusiastic. She didn't drink or smoke. That was just her natural personality. I mean, drink or take drugs. She was just um, always dialed up to 10. And that's why most of her romantic relationships didn't last that long because men could only take so much of her before they would back slowly into the bushes like Homer Simpson. Well, um, you just said something that made me think about how you feel about your subjects. So so with with Lupe Villas, do you feel like you knew her, that you know her? No, no, that, that would be presumptuous of me. Um, even when I've interviewed, you know, still living people for articles, I don't feel like I know them. So you only do the best you can and you have to admit to the reader what you don't know. Uh, there's a lot of stories about everybody I've written about that may be very good stories and may be widely believed, 
but there's no proof one way or the other. So I cite my sources. I say how reliable the sources are. And I say, you make up your own mind because the reader has to trust you. Well, you often in your book say, according to various accounts, and then there's this and that, you know, the same moment can be told several different ways. But what I'm asking is, with your subject like Lupe, you know, you spend a couple of years with her. Do you do you love her? Uh, you know, is, do you ever I really love her, her, but at right now, I never want to see another photo of her or watch another one of her films because that's the point you get to after two or three years. It's like in a couple of years, yes, I'll be able to watch some Lupe Velez films, but right now, when you're when you're through with the book and you're through with the publicity and you're through with the umpteenth re-edit and all that, you're just sick to death of them. Uh, <laughs> well, but do you feel, I wonder, do you feel a responsibility to Lupe Velez to tell her story? Definitely. I have this horrible feeling that if there's an afterlife, all of my subjects are waiting for me with baseball bats. Yeah, that's funny. But I do try to, um, I like the people I write about. So uh, these are not whitewashes, but they're not, uh, you know, tabloid journalism either. So you have to show the good and the bad. And there is some bad in every person I've written about. Uh, I was horrified by some of the things that Irene Castle said and did, for instance. And it's yeah. like, oh, Irene, why did you say that? And Lupi Velez, uh, when she was watching a boxing match, uh, she was cheering for a Mexican fighter against a black fighter. And the reporter said, you don't like the black boys, do you? And she said, no, I don't. And then she quickly caught herself, realized she was talking to a reporter and said, don't put that in the press. I, everybody has to like me. And of course it went in the press anyway. <laughs> so I had to put that in the book because that's my job as a biographer. But fortunately, she never said anything else racist that I was able to find. So I think that was just kind of an unfortunate slip. What um, what, what what sort of things did Irene Castle say? <laughs> oh, God, Irene. Um well, she was a member of America First, uh, but her son explained to me that she lost her husband in the First World War, and she didn't want to lose her son in the Second World War. And she was also married at the time to a very right-wing German. So he kind of tried to explain it away by that. And she also, this was a woman who helped invent ragtime dancing. In the 1920s, she referred to jazz as jungle music. And it's like, oh, oh, Irene, why did you say that? But I'm writing her biography. I have to I have to tell the truth, whether I like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> have you um, have you ever started writing a book about someone and then backed off saying, oh, wow, there are things about this person I didn't get and I don't want to write about them? Uh, well, Divine. I wanted to write a book about Divine because I went to college in Baltimore and I knew a lot of those people. Uh, and there were several reasons I couldn't. For one thing, uh, there was someone associated with him in business who was going to be extremely difficult about copyrights and anything I said. Um, also, as much as I liked Divine as an actor, I wasn't that crazy about him as a person the more I started reading about him. But I had the best title. I'm so upset I didn't get to use the title. <laughs> I wanted to call it Divine Revelations, The Man Who Would Be Queen. <laughs> that would have been beautiful. 
That would have been great. I, I, I'm i so sorry. That's one of the, the reasons I love writing about Jane Mansfield is I like the title of the book so much. <laughs> uh, well, it's a, and that's a great book. The girl couldn't help it. But now uh, you had some trouble with the title of this book. Your publishers balked at your original title? No, we couldn't. They came up with it. I give them full credit for the title of this book, which I love, because I couldn't think of a thing because I didn't want to use the phrase Mexican Spitfire in the title of the book. Mm. And I was knocking my head against the wall trying to figure out a good title. And someone at my publisher came up with Strictly Dynamite. And I said, that's it. That's great. Another one of her her films. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, great. Well, um, you know, we think of Lupe Velez, if we know her work, uh, as a, a comic. You know, she was a very funny and vivacious actress. But you argue in your book that Lupe Velez could have had the, a career like Greta Garbo or Mylena Dietrich. I think she could have. I, I Before I started re- writing the book, I wasn't that familiar with her body of work. But after watching her, she was amazingly versatile as a dramatic actress, as a singer, as a comedian. Uh, she did three Broadway shows. Um, she did radio. She was one of the first actresses to do television. She was on television in 1931. Wow. And, uh, her dramatic films, The Gaucho, when she was still a teenager, was her first big film. She was brilliant in that. Uh, Resurrection, 1931, she should have been nominated for an Oscar, but she didn't have a major studio backing her. And that was one of the best dramatic roles she did. The Squaw Man, which was a really problematic film, but she was marvelous in it. And her last film, Nana, which she made in Mexico in 1943, uh, you can find that on the Internet. It's not on YouTube, but it is on, you know, if you do a video search on it. And at the end of her life, even after doing all those crappy B comedies, she's still got the chops. She's still gorgeous and she's still an amazingly good dramatic actress. How could someone do TV in 1931? How many TVs were there in 1931? Not many. It was the uh, what's now the radio station 1010 Winds was originally a television station in the early 30s. And I think it only broadcast to the immediate New York area. Um, I don't think the Empire State Building was even up at the time. So I'm not sure what tower they broadcast from. But uh, she was on a television variety show in 1931. Well, is there any uh, in a scope of that? No, I I looked and I asked, but I have a friend at the Paley Center and it just doesn't exist anymore, if it was even saved. And uh, and her radio, you mentioned her radio work. Um, was it difficult for her to do radio? She has a sort of a thick accent. She guested on radio. She never had her own show. And that was one of her problems at the end of her life is her career had run out um by 1944 hollywood didn't want her anymore even for b films uh a huge promising mexican film contract had just fallen through she couldn't have her own radio show really with her accent vaudeville was dead she was offered a broadway show which was so bad it never made it to broadway television really wasn't on the horizon yet so uh, I think the reason for her suicide was as much her career as the fact that she was unmarried and pregnant. And also her family and friends kind of turned their backs on her. 
Well, that's very sad, and I want to know more about that in a minute. But let me ask, uh, to what degree do you think her Mexican heritage uh, derailed her career trajectory? Was was there racism involved? Definitely. I think there was. You had to have the right accent. Everyone has an accent. You can hear my Philadelphia as we speak. Lovely. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you have to have the right accent. I mean, French and British are okay. Sometimes German is okay. Uh, Swedish is okay, if you're understandable. But um, Asian, Hispanic, uh, you're screwed. Uh, you're you're definitely uh, going to be typecast into certain kinds of roles, as she was. Now, I know and even, even her fellow Mexicans, Dolores Del Rio and, and Raymond Navarro, had problems when talkies came along. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, uh, Anna Mae Wong uh, had a problem because... Uh, she had no accent. She was from California. She's from LA, yeah. Yeah, but she was Asian, so she was typecast. And let's not even get into Black people, the problems they had. I do mention in the book that uh, Teresa Harris should have been a huge star, but she was, uh, you know, condemned to play maids. And uh, they couldn't show uh, somebody like Anna Mae Wong kissing somebody like Paul Muni, which is why she wasn't cast in The Good Earth. What about, um, it was okay for... um, a Mexican to kiss, uh, that wasn't a problem? Well, since she looked Anglo, it was all right. So they, they did have her in romances with, with Anglo leading men. Um, but there were, early on, uh, there was one, one of the most hilariously awful films is, um, let me see. It, it wasn't East is West. There, she made so many films with similar titles. Uh-huh. Um, yes, uh, East is West. That's with what I'm Edward G. Robinson and Lupe Velez as Chinese people. Oh, <laughs> which is just both horrifying and hilarious because who looks more Chinese than Edward G. Robinson? Edward G. Robinson. And, uh, of course, at the end, she falls in love with Lou Ayers. And, of course, at the end of the movie, turns out, surprise, she's not really Chinese after all. So, so she they're allowed to get married. And, and, <laughs> and Edward G. Robinson, I love the fact he even throws in one of his, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just awful. It's just such a bad film. She worked with Lon Chaney, though. She did, and they were great together. He played her father. Um and that's the other one that um, sounds similar to that, where East is East. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. Is the title of that one. So I invariably get those two confused. <laughs> and they're great together because Lon Chaney was a great actor, a great character actor. And this is not one of his scary monster roles. So he plays this, you know, affectionate father of this teenage girl. And he and Lupe are just terrific together. One of your previous subjects, John Gilbert, makes a couple of cameo appearances in, in this book. When that happens, do you do you have like, oh, it's John? Yes, I do. It's like, oh, hi, Jack. How have you been? I haven't seen you in a while. Um, yeah, their romance was, was broken up by air sickness. <laughs> they, were, they went to Europe together and they took one of those little puddle jumper flights and Loopy was not a good flyer. And 
she threw up vociferously for the entire flight, yelling and screaming and cursing the entire time. And by the time they landed, um, John Gilbert had pretty much had enough of her. <laughs> it's it a turn kind off. of takes the, takes the bloom off the rose. It's a turn off to him to see some girl puking. Um, but uh, Lupe Villas had trouble on planes and on boats as well. She must have had trouble. Yes, she was not a good traveler, but she traveled a lot for uh, for work. She worked in, um, I mean, she went back and forth from New York to um, Hollywood she went to Europe. Uh, so she spent a lot of time being very unhappy on ships and on planes. And she was always late, always late. She and Johnny Weissmuller were yeah. the most resented people. And back then, if you were a star, they would hold a plane for you. Right. And finally, I think it was American Airlines said that uh, we are not holding planes for you anymore. If you're not here when we take off, goodbye. And the two of them always no, late. They would never do that now. They would think... lose their tickets. They would lose their suitcases. They were not well-prepared travelers. <laughs> and they, she brought her dogs and stuff with her when she traveled? Dogs, plural, usually. Yeah. <laughs> she had lots of dogs and uh, would always bring them with her when she traveled. And they usually gave props. She would bring them to the commissary when she was working and she had these little hairless chihuahuas, which creep the hell out of everybody. And uh, one of the waitresses thought it was a rat on the table. And <laughs> and ran. My, my, I think my favorite moment in Lupe Velez's career is from Hollywood party where she has that egg fight with Laurel and Hardy. That and is classic that you can find on YouTube. And that I, is one of the most Brilliant three minutes of, of silent slapstick. It's so great. And I love it, not just because I love Laurel and Hardy and Lupe Velas. She looks incredible. She's wearing like the sexiest outfit you've ever seen. And she, that she... outfit got that bit sliced out of a lot of uh, release prints, oh. uh, the censors, because it was completely backless and pretty much sideless. Yeah. So uh, that that actually was cut out of a lot of uh, release prints. Did she, ever, did she ever eat solid food? She's like uh, weighs about 90 pounds in that. She was very thin. She uh, went on every wacky diet that came along, uh, tomato juice diets and liver diets and whatever. But she was uh, in a couple of films. You can see she pretty much weighs what a normal person would weigh. And then the reviewers would say she was getting fat, which is so absolutely ridiculous down. because she was generally underweight. Yeah. She's very skinny and little. I mean, how tall was she? Do you know? Five feet, she was five feet tall. And uh, most of her boyfriends were over six feet tall. <laughs> Interesting. And one of those boyfriends was Gary Cooper. That was really the love. Oh of my her. God. They were the sexiest couple in Hollywood. Um, it was, uh, and when you see Wolf Song, the, the only film they made together, which was made while they were having an affair, it's like softcore pornography. Like you're you're peeping through their their keyhole. Uh, it's one of those films where the um, uh, the off screen screen chemistry really comes through on screen, even though it's not that great a film. They're just gorgeous together. Like the Flesh and the Devil with Garbo and John Gilbert. Who, by the way, I don't think had much of a romance. 
Really? I think Garbo was scared to death of Gilbert. And uh, he was on her like, you know, he fell madly in love with just about every woman he met. Yeah. And when she showed up and they were cast opposite each other, he was definitely smitten. But she was a 21 year old girl who barely spoke English and just lost her sister. And uh, I think she was grateful for his attention. But after she realized how much he was to take, she was the heck out of there. Hmm. So I don't think that was as much of a romance as people played it up to be. And do you think the story is uh, apocryphal then about her, the the wedding that she didn't show up to? and all? That? I think it's ridiculous. I don't think she ever had any intention of marrying him. Uh, I don't know whether he thought that she was going to show up or not, but there was no way she was going to. And the story about him and Louis B. Mayer having a fist fight in the men's room, I I give all of the different sources and I kind of raise an eyebrow because when you look at all the different stories, it becomes more and more unlikely that that ever happened. Well, I guess people were always looking for why John Gilbert's career ended for those of our listeners who don't know. Well, a lot of it was his own fault and he admitted it. He was a perfectionist. He was never satisfied with anything. And uh, he also would not take a pay cut when talkies came along. And he and Louis B. Mayer did hate each other because uh, John Gilbert loved poking a bear with a stick. And, you know, he, he enjoyed annoying the heck out of Louis B. Mayer. But one thing I love about John Gilbert is he took responsibility for all of his own mistakes and never blamed anybody else uh, but himself for his career problems and his personal problems. In fact, none of his ex-wives ever spoke badly of him, which I think speaks well of him. And Garbo, you know, she made a point of getting him into uh, Queen Christina, right? Which wasn't doing him any favors. That was a terrible role. (laughs) (laughs) I look at the roles he could have played and it's, heartbreaking uh i would have loved to have seen john gilbert in the john barrymore role in grand hotel because i I love john barrymore but he was 25 years too old for that part uh i'd love to see him john gilbert in the adolf manju role in stage door uh Mm. there are so many great character roles he could have played and remember he was younger than ronald coleman who went on acting well into the 1950s yeah so john gilbert could have had like another 25, 30 years ahead of him as an actor had he not been dead, which kind of hurt his career. Yes. That's, that's a, nowadays, they could AI him. They could AI him, right. Did you happen to see the film Babylon that came out? In- no, I was warned not to. I was told that I would have a rage stroke within the first five minutes, and my <laughs> friends kept me away from seeing it. Well, I would say that it's a terrible movie, but, uh, you know, the story that it wants to tell, which is partially the story of John Gilbert and also Clara Bow. Those are two interesting stories. And it's kind of a sad thing that they've wasted them on that movie because they could have done something else. Well, I did like the artist, uh, which was kind of a tribute oh, to the whole like um, John Gilbert, Douglas Fairbanks, you know, the, the end of the silent era. I thought they did an excellent job with that. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and I think there are actually moments of Babylon, you know, if I had had a scissor and could cut it, you know, I would have made a good movie out of it. But uh, that that would have that that work and are interesting. And one of those is a, a scene where you'll have uh, to take scissors and and send me the viewable clips of Babylon. There's a scene where Brad Pitt, who's playing the John Gilbert 
role confronts a journalist who has written about the end of his career and he's mad at her and she says something to the effect that you know sound didn't end your career and you didn't end your career it was just time for you to move on and for another star to come along you know say Clark Gable for instance and uh, that's probably pretty accurate I would think it really isn't because John Gilbert wanted to become a character actor and play supporting roles in villains. He could have been, he could have had Adolf Manjou's career. Yeah. Uh, he was, at the time of his death, he was supposed to play the supporting John Halliday role in Desire, the Marlena Dietrich film. Marlena and Gary Cooper were the leads, and he would have played Marlena's uh, partner in crime, and he would have been brilliant in it. And he could have gone on and on playing older character parts and villains, which he adored playing. So his I don't... Time, his time as a movie star, you know, as a... Leading... His, his time as a, as a leading star might have been over, but um, him not having a Mexican accent, he could have gone on uh, for ages playing that kind of role. Yeah. Um, so uh, back to the subject that we're talking about today. Back you, to Lupe. Yeah, your book, it's called Strictly Dynamite, The Sensational Life of Lupe Velez, and we're talking with Eve Golden. And um, I want to talk a little bit more about her relationship with Gary Cooper. Uh, they didn't get married. Did they consider marriage at some point? No, they were. Uh, they joked about it a lot because the press always had them either engaged or married or and they would joke and say, oh, yes, we've been married and divorced three times already and stop asking us about it. And um, he was too straight for her. Uh, he was one of those guys who really could only take so much Lupe Velez. And his parents were horrified. They were very, um, he came from, if people think of him as a dumb cowboy. And he was a very well-educated, wealthy uh, came from a, a political family. He was, you know, a very straight, intelligent guy. And he could really only take so much of her. There is no way that that relationship would not have flamed out within a couple of years. Uh, Johnny Weissmuller loved rough sex and a good fight as much as Loopy did. And that's why their marriage lasted five years. And she said that the marriage really ended when they stopped fighting and stopped caring. Mm. Well, um, and when you think about, you know, I, I mean, sometimes I look at a famous person's obituary because I know you, um, Eve Golden, you also write obituaries for National Nurse News Service. And with yes, Parker. I just killed Michael Gambon today. Oh, it's too bad. <laughs> and, Sorry. <laughs> and uh, when I look at, like, you see the, the, you look at somebody's life and you see who they were married to. They were married, you know, four times and the, the people they were married to, you go, what? Um, like that someone could be with happily in, involved with Gary Cooper and then Johnny Weissmuller. Not that, I mean, they're both men and they're both handsome, but Gary Cooper seems brilliant and Johnny Weissmuller seems less than brilliant. <laughs> yeah, the, the the Johnny Weissmuller thing kind of confuses me too, but I'm trying to think of a um, friends with benefits. That's That's the mm. phrase that I can use on the air. Uh, is what I think they were. Um, and she had 
I mean, a lot of besides John Gilbert and Johnny Weissmuller, she dated Al Jolson and George Jessel at the same time, which is, is really eyebrow raising because not only were they not particularly good looking men who were both twice her age, but yeah. they were rivals. They hated each other. Yeah. So that was something. And, and um, we've heard that Al Jolson was a very abusive uh, man uh, with women. You you do not get abusive with Lupe Velez or you will live to regret it. <laughs> because she she will cut you. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was with uh, Arturo de Cordova. And of course, the guy who knocked her up toward the end of her life. Uh, and she also, one thing that really speaks well of her, she had a lot of platonic friends as well, both male and female, straight and gay. She had a lot of long-term friends, which I think speaks very well of her. Jane Mansfield didn't have a lot of close friends outside of her family because she was so wrapped up in her career. And in being Jane Mansfield, that was pretty much it for her. But Lupe Velez uh, had a lot of very close friends. I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf, and we're chatting this week with Eve Golden. Uh, she's the author of a new book called Strictly Dynamite, The Sensational Life of Lupe Velez. Let's take a moment and listen to a recording of Lupe Velez. She was a talented singer, and here she is in Lupe Velez, the subject of a new book by Eve Golden. The book is called Strictly Dynamite, The Sensational Life of Lupe Velez. Do you, do, what kind of research do, do you do? I mean, uh, you didn't, there's not very many people left that you could interview. Uh, I, I did manage to. I interviewed Ann Miller about 20 years ago. Uh, and she she had some good Lupe Velez stories. I mean, this was an interview about Ann Miller and Lupe Velez only you know, tangentially came up, but I was able to use that. But this was almost entirely through uh, other books about um, Lupe and Hollywood and the Mexican film industry. And again, I had to choose what to believe and what not to believe from these. And also 
every newspaper and magazine ever printed now is digitized. So I spent hours and hours and hours every day going through those. And again, trying to figure out what's believable and what's not. So do you keep, do you have some kind of a chart or some kind of a, I mean, how do you keep it all together when you hmm. like compile? The one, the one piece of advice I give biographers is make a chapter by chapter skeleton and have it on your bulletin board in front of you. And that way you don't realize, oh my God, I just spent 500 pages writing about 1932. Yeah. And you can have every chapter in front of you and not spend too much time on one thing and ignore another. And also when you get bored with 1932, which is going to happen, you can hop ahead to 1941 uh, because you have to keep yourself interested. Well, it's not a spoiler to say that Lupe Velez is no longer living and that she committed suicide. Uh, But most kind of cradle to grave biographies end with the death of their subject but you you have several chapters after her death what 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 was her legacy that you wanted to discuss well i wanted to talk about what happened to other hispanic and hispanic adjacent actors and actresses in the decades to come and whether or not they had the same problems that she did i don't go into it at huge length i mean this is not a book about being hispanic in hollywood it's a biography of lupe velez and also the fight over her estate and her will and her horrific estate sale. And of course, the rumors about her death. I had to go into all of that. So there's there's a couple chapters just about, you know, post-death. Well, I know you have a, a particularly uh, strong feelings about Kenneth Anger and his book. Yes, words I cannot use on the air. And his book. And he went and died right after my book went to press. He did that on purpose, I'm pretty sure, because <laughs> he knew I was going to say something about him and he would have sued me. So I had to be accurate and polite about Kenneth Anger, but I let him hang himself with his own words. Well, yeah. So when when his book was published, Hollywood Babylon in 1959 or something, um, there was no internet and people couldn't check or verify any of the things that he said oh because having an internet makes everything so much more uh truthful nowadays (laughs) nobody believes anything that's not true anymore well these are alternative facts uh, um so uh you know in his book he has a uh i mean i think his book was was maybe what people thought first when they think of lupe velez well when people said who are you writing about I would say Lupe Velez and they'd say, oh, didn't she? And I say, no, she didn't. Yeah. Uh, he had her drowning in her toilet. Which a very is lurid story. Physically impossible unless your maid is holding you by the ankles and dunking you. <laughs> because otherwise, all of us who have had food poisoning or, or an intestinal virus would be dead. It also, you know, kind of belittles the sadness of her suicide. Why? What Which drove- he loved doing. I mean, he he lived to belittle Hollywood. That was his. That was his. He was very bitter about uh, his lack of financial and fame success in Hollywood, and he just loved ripping Hollywood apart. Well, Eve Golden, you can be irreverent when you discuss obituaries and so on. We've had many discussions like that. Um, but what what do you think? I mean, it's very sad that Lupe Velez committed suicide, and what. What do you think 
drove her to that. A lot we, of things. At the end of and her I career. Don't, I don't second guess her decision because at the time of her death, she was pushing 40. Uh, not a good time for actresses. Um, her career was basically coming to an end. She had enough money to live on, but she lived to work. She wanted to work and basically nobody wanted her anymore. She was unmarried and pregnant, which is, this is even before Ingrid Bergman. And her family and friends, uh, especially one of her sisters, uh, basically didn't want to know. They turned their back on her. And I don't think the future looked good for her, realistically speaking. So I am not going to second guess her decision. If she hadn't gone into show business, she might have lived a very different and longer life then. I can't see her not going into show business. It's like Jane Mansfield. There's there's certain people who are just born to act and love the audience. And the funny thing is Jane Mansfield and Lupe Velez are known for their movies, but they were really more effective on stage. They loved interacting with the audience. And that give and take with the audience is something that they loved. And even reviewers who saw Lupe Velez's stage act they saw her in vaudeville and in nightclubs and on broadway and even if they didn't like her in the movies or had never seen her in the movies they said that she was absolutely brilliant on stage you describe a a, a, a night in vaudeville where the everybody was saying oh the crowd is terrible and it's awful out there and how she just came out and just insisted that they love her and have a good time yeah she was one of those people like like jimmy durante who just emanated this this love for the audience and this need to be loved by the audience and she worked with her she was she was not a trained singer or dancer and she admitted that but she just went out there and had fun and there's this great scene from uh the half naked truth which you can find on youtube that's a great movie where the director was smart enough to shoot loopy and to shoot the audience and shoot the people backstage and you can see the reaction between them all. And she's just out there on stage doing this very naughty song and dance. And you can really see how good she was on stage from this scene because she's just out there having fun. And you mentioned Durante. She worked with Durante, what, four or five films, yeah? Uh, She worked with him on Broadway and in several films. And he and Leon Errol, were best co-stars so she worked best with these older comedians and uh rather than romantic leading men because she was such a good comic actress and there was such a good give and take between them and scene stealing oh how they would steal scenes from each other and that was just fun to do and fun to watch um and jimmy durante it's he's a he I, i happen to love him but i think he's just somebody who's completely obscure now to most young people oh no i think everybody knows jimmy durante i think people our age do but of course i think everybody knows alice brady so what the hell yeah that's right (laughs) i I don't know i don't know how he would even describe jimmy durante to people well he was a really nice guy but he was he and loopy were very competitive Mm. uh they worked well together but they would get annoyed with each other when they would steal scenes from each other because mm-hmm. you can't work your way up in show business, claw your way up in show business like Jimmy Durante did and not be a really tough guy who makes sure that he is well put, you know, seen to good, good effect. 
Well, before the era of sitcoms, Lupe Velez had a sitcom, the Mexican School Yes, yes they were about an hour long. And uh, they had the same characters doing pretty much the same thing. Uh, almost the same cast. They would switch her husbands every so often, but the actors were so bland that nobody ever even noticed. Yeah, nobody noticed the difference. No, nobody noticed that. Um, <laughs> they were not very good, the Mexican Spitfires, but they were comfort food. Uh, you would come back and see what Carmelita and Uncle Matt were up to. And they would sometimes shoot them two at a time. They didn't even know which Mexican Spitfire they were shooting. <laughs> and did they, were they uh, the second bill? I don't know, they were a B picture. They were the second bill. And um, the Magnificent Ambersons actually played second bill to a Mexican Spitfire. And Orson Welles never forgave Lupe Velez. He hated her till the day he died. And Whoa. of course, when he was shooting Citizen Kane, she would ride through his set on a tricycle with her chihuahuas screaming beep beep at him. Because again, <laughs> she just, if you were a pompous blowhard, she would be after you. And there's no more pompous a blowhard than, than Orson Welles. <laughs> well, she really does come to life in this book. And it's, it's such a great book, Eve. It is called Strictly Dynamite, The Sensational Life of Lupe Velez. And the author, the brilliant Eve Golden. Eve, what are you going to do next? I'm all biographied out for the time being. Yeah. Um, I wrote a novel, which I think is the most hilarious and scary and suspenseful and brilliant novel ever written. But unfortunately, um, several agents and uh, publishers have begged to differ on that subject. I cannot possibly be biased there, of course, you know. <laughs> Well, I'd love to read it. I hope you send it to me and give me a chance. I will, I will be happy to send it to you. Um, okay. But I don't know. No, I'm kind of biographied out for the moment. I'm I'm hard at work writing bio, uh, obituaries for work. And as my college roommate's mother used to say, people are dying who never died before. So I'm always kept busy. <laughs> no, that's good. Well, E. Golden, thank you again for being with us on Film the Bookshelf. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you, darling. Always nice to talk to you. I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf. Stacy Easton joins me now. Stacy Easton writes about country music for National Public Radio and has just published a lovely little volume about the great Tammy Wynette, and it is called Why Tammy Wynette Matters. Stacy Easton, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you. I've had one piece in NPR. I write for everyone. Oh, yeah. Good. And um, the, this book, uh, Why Tell Me Why Net Matters, in your, in your introduction, you state it so well. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit. Why, why does Tell Me Why Net Matter? I think it's, well, I mean, it, aside from the fact that she's just a great singer and songwriter and one of the sort of great interpretive singers, um, and that I think that she's been lost in relationship to her friends Dolly and Loretta. So that's part of it. I think she's also uh, a interesting figure to sort of work out ongoing problems of gender and sexuality and class. Uh, I think that's really important. And I think 
Um, and also to figure out how country music as a genre has worked historically. Yeah. Well, what 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 would you say? Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, everybody knows "Stand by Your Man." It's one of the most famous songs that she ever recorded, and it's a great record. What, what would you say are her other most important uh, recordings? Sure, and just in terms of singles, um, I think I've written and I wrote in the book, and I think it's absolutely vital is how profoundly sad "Apartment Number Nine is. I call it one of the saddest songs in country music. Yeah. Um, which I think is true, um, if not the saddest. Uh, D-I-B-O-R-I-C. Um, I love, um, oh my god, I just blanked. I'm really sorry. It's been a long day. Sure. Um, I really love, she did a song called Womanhood, um, which was her last sort of big country hit yeah. in the 70s. Which is something that doesn't people don't listen to uh as much. Um but I think it's sort of is sort of necessary for politics. And some of the classic honky song stuff I'm really love. I love Till I Get It Right. I love I Don't Wanna Play House. Um Deeply I love your good girl's gonna go bad, um, which is funny and sexy and disruptive in ways her work isn't usually. Uh, and then her work with George, um, we're not jet set, uh, obviously again, funny and sexy in ways that maybe she isn't usually. Um, I love golden ring and sort of irony of having the marriage fall apart while she sings this great sentimental oh henry-esque ode mm-hmm. um yeah no i think that's a that's a good canon and then the completely uh out of left field singles she did with klf the british jokesters um about justified and ancient i think wouldn't be would be necessary for understanding Tammy Wynette's career. Well, in your in your book, you spend a little time talking about the the moment in which Hillary Clinton on sixty Minutes evoked Tammy Wynette, and I was watching that night, and I was thinking, you know, she was using that as a sort of shorthand. I didn't think she was talking specifically about Tammy Wynette and about uh, particularly Tammy Wynette. She was just saying. You know, I'm not the kind of little woman that you would that would just stand by her man. But you you took that a lot more personally. You think that was a much more direct attack on Tammy Wynette? I think she did actually say Tammy Wynette. She said, like, I'm not like Tammy Wynette. I think yeah. uh, so she did actually quote her uh, directly. Um, Clinton's really interesting. Um I'm more progressive than she is. Um, so that's an important bit to remember or think about. I think that Clinton doesn't spend a lot of time considering or didn't spend a lot of time considering uh, working class people from Midwest and the South. Um, I think about that in relationship to a couple of things. Um, she was in Little Rock 
in the 70s. She was in the South doing policy work uh, in that era. And I've never felt like it was integrated into her political. It felt like some of the place she landed that she didn't necessarily want to land to and that she used as a, as a way of escaping. Um, and so there's a certain amount of, I've always found a little bit of contempt, uh, with her there. And I found that in relationship to Tammy Wynette too. It wasn't an act of careful listening. And then even like when she lost the election to Trump and she didn't bother to go in places like Wisconsin. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think, she, I don't know if she takes that seriously. I think, and I think that she, Wynette was smarter and I, when I was really hurt by that, and uh, I found it not without justification. I think some of the media talking about that that space were like, well, when I should get over it, she apologized. But I think it was, yeah, I think it was a direct insult coming from a place of ignorance, and I think that Clinton should have known better. Of course, Tammy Wynette's politics are not so great. You mentioned in your book that she did a sort of a country music Woodstock in uh, support of of Governor Wallace, George Wallace, who was running for president. Yeah, no, her politics were terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think, and that's the other thing, too, is is that you can talk about how personally and domestically were complex, difficult moments that she worked really hard to to process out and then on a larger collective scale um, she was very much in favor of maintaining a racist and classist and misogynist um, state right that already existed Um, and misogyny is really interesting because she herself um came from a from a culture that did not treat her well as a woman and then she sort of perpetuated that kind of not treated well. Um yeah, so yeah, I think that actively her politics were really problematic. Now um was Tammy Wynette the master of her universe? Did she write many of these songs? Did she decide which songs to record? Or was she the tool of her record producers? Yeah. Um, no, she very... I think there's an under, misunderstanding sometimes in country music that uh, that authorship is key. And I think there's a sort of like weird moment that if you don't write things, you're not the author of things. And I think that if you don't write things, and you perform things, the act of performance is an act of authorship. And I think uh, one couldn't argue that Wynette was, wasn't was uh, a great performer. There's also um, some context, especially around her husband, George Jones, um, but also with her producer, Sherelle, where there's like this un- understated idea that um that she was a puppet and I think that if any spent any amount of time or thought about Wynette's process or how steely or difficult a person Wynette could be, um that she could be anybody's 
puppet is laughable. I think also it makes me reconsider what authorship could be and makes me sort of, I think in Nashville, it's a collective effort. And I've always found that really fascinating that the writer and the musicians and the performers and the producers work together in a kind of collectivity. Um, and so you could argue that her and Sherelle's relationship lasted for decades and made great art was an act of mutually reinforcing skill and talent. Um, but I definitively don't understand the argument that I've heard come out of this um, that uh, that Wynette was glad. I mean, I, I, you couldn't lead Wynette anywhere. Hmm. Now, in, in in doing your research for this book, uh, had, had you ever uh, seen Tammy Wynette in person or met her? Or? Not old enough. <laughs> yeah. So who who did you speak to? I didn't do direct interviews. I think it was about what was what was in. Yeah, already the the ideas of that were going through. So I listened to a lot of, and it was COVID, right? So, yeah, sure. so going to places was all, it was a little difficult. Um, I listened to a lot of Renette's music. I listened to her records. I read her autobiography. I read the biographies of McDonough and her children. Um, I read, I followed the links and listened to the, uh, Cohen podcast, um, co-podcast. I, um, I went through digitized copies of, of interviews that she had done that were present. Um, there were a couple of places where I felt like there was a little hard to get information, but, um, yeah. I, I read around it in a lot of ways. You feel like you got to know her when you were writing this book? This was a really fascinating thing for me, is that I started the book um, thinking that I would get to know her better, that there was a number of Wynette spaces or Wynette considerations that I didn't know, but I figured if I did enough research, um, then I would figure it out, right? Yeah. Um, but I didn't. And that was always a fascinating thing for me. The chief example of that is the kidnapping that happened. And I thought, you know, I sat down and I was like, absolutely, I will figure out who kidnapped her and what and why they kidnapped her and and then I read around that and I read as much as I could on that. And I had no idea at the end of it, right? Or that space where she died, even in death, where there were eight or nine accounts over five or six people. Timelines were all skewy. Uh, who was in the room was skewy. Uh, what she died of was a little fussy. So fussy, in fact, that they exhumed her body uh, months later. So I, I, I left with a consideration that I didn't know it was possible to understand Renette, which was a really interesting place to end up in. I guess the music is the main um, legacy that speaks for itself then. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Are cold and lonely. Stand by your man and show the world you love him. Keep giving all the love you can. Stand by your It's a fascinating book, Stacey Easton, and, and I enjoyed it. Why Tiny Wynette Matters. And uh, thank you for spending a few minutes talking with us today on From the Bookshelf. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.